Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Sydney Ideas public lecture series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm extremely pleased to welcome our distinguished panel of historians from Harvard and Burbick College, University of London, to the University of Sydney tonight. They are all guests of the States of Statelessness, a third international history postgraduate intensive masterclass hosted by the Harvard Australian Studies Committee. And I'd like to thank the University of Sydney Masterclass Convener, Professor Glenda Sluger, for working with Sydney Ideas to pull them together for this forum tonight while they are here for a very short time. The format for tonight is a 45-minute panel in conversation and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. We do have some microphones set up at the bottom of the aisles here, so please come down and queue at the microphones with your questions. And we are recording it for the university website, so please do use the microphones for your questions. I'm now very pleased to welcome Professor Glenda Sluger, Fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities and Professor of International History at the University of Cinder, Sydney. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Glenda is the host of this evening's forum and will introduce the speakers to you. Thank you, Glenda. All right, so the first thing I have to say is how happy I am to see you all here and how grateful I am that we're not up against the MasterChef final. Thank you very much for coming. So, why History Matters? Well, this is a forum that we set up last year as a way of bringing to a broader public the kinds of discussions that take place amongst and between historians which is often not that easy, actually. It's not as if we all walk out of our offices into corridors where we get to talk about these things with our colleagues, about what we do and our ideas. Often we're all too busy teaching or doing administration or researching or writing, so we put a lot of our ideas on paper, but we don't get a chance all that often to talk about them to each other. And when we, often from an Australian base, when we do talk to other historians, we'll go overseas to talk to them but uh, in this case, the historians have, from overseas have come to us. And that's a very Australian concept, overseas, I just have to say. So uh, this forum is really about the desire to exchange ideas, and it provides the opportunity for conversations I'd love to be having, not just in, my, in the corridors at work, but in my living room, at least once a week, which is why the Enlightenment invented the salon, I think. So it, I have to ask you to imagine this as my living room. It's slightly larger. But I have in my living room, sitting down with glasses of water rather than champagne or tea, the, uh, some of my favourite historians. And I'll begin with Professor Joyce E. Chaplin, just here on my left, the James Duncan Phillips Professor of Early American History at Harvard University. Joyce Chaplin's interests include topics in the history of science and in environmental history. She's the author of numerous books, including, most recently, The First Scientific American, Benjamin Franklin and the Pursuit of Genius, and she's currently writing a history of circumnavigation, which is the topic I will be asking her about tonight. And that book is rather tantalisingly entitled From Magellan the Explorer to Magellan the GPS. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, next to Joyce is David Armitage. Now, some of you may have heard or seen David at a, at a previous Sydney Ideas Forum. David is Lloyd C. Blankfein, Professor of History at Harvard, and in the past, he's spoken to us about his history of the idea of civil war from Rome to Iraq. 
but he's also writing a study of the foundations of modern international thought and an edition of John Locke's colonial writings. The book I really am going to interrogate him on tonight is The Declaration of Independence, A Global History, a book that came out in 2007. And then on the other side of the black chair, Sunil Amrith, Senior Lecturer in History at Birkbeck College, University of London. Sunil's research is on the history of the Bay of Bengal region since the late 18th century. He's currently focusing on the history of migration and cultural circulation between South India and Southeast Asia. And he's particularly interested in Tamil-speaking migrants and their circulation across the Bay of Bengal. And in how Tamils engaged with others, with Chinese, Malay, Burmese and other South Asians. And he's currently writing a short general history, actually he's finished it and it's coming out next year, a short general history of migration and diaspora in modern Asia. And finally, Erez Manella, Professor of History at Harvard University. I think he's the only Harvard University professor I've met who hasn't got a full kind of endowed chair title, but we're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he speci specialises in modern international history and the history of the United States in the world, focusing primarily on the 20th century. His recent book, The Wilsonian Moment, Self-Determination and the International Origins of Anti-Colonial Nationalism, showed how uh, the United States attempted to reshape world order in the wake of World War I in intersection with the anti-colonial upheavals of 1919 in Egypt, India, China and Korea. So this was a path or is a path-breaking book that offered perspectives from all, a variety of parts of the world that were never included in the past in uh, general histories of um, Wilsonianism and at the end of the First World War and its international history. Right now he's working on the evolution of international society through the study of the World Health Organization's campaign for the global eradication of smallpox in the 1960s and 70s. So I, I just wanted to, um, before I get to asking them questions, I just want to check, were any of you here last year for the Why History Matters Forum? Do you remember? Yeah. I thought I'd take the pulse a bit of history and where we are today because I remember last year I was in a buoyant mood. I was so happy and I said history was hot, you know, Barack Obama was walking around with his copies of, you know, histories of FDR and sorting out his policy on the basis of that. And he was citing examples from the Civil War and bringing Americans together, new versions of the past. And in the middle of the GFC, economists and pundits alike were hearkening back to the lessons of the Depression and the American New Deal. People were still divided. They weren't agreeing on the past, on how the Depression started or how it was stopped, but everybody was certain that history had some place in how we saw the world today and what we thought about. Well, it, it's as if that was an era long gone. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but it's enough to make one nostalgic for John Howard and the black armband debates. Where's history gone? Uh, Julia Gillard, I've been researching her educational background. I still haven't found out if she studied history or if she's interested in it, but she is currently... Uh, re she's supposed to be reading a series of books uh, nominated for the Prime Minister's non-fiction prize. And I, f I have a feeling that we won't find out the answer until after the um, election. I did want someone in the debate to ask her which one she preferred. But uh, so far, history hasn't had much of a place. So in the interest of moving backwards and making our society bigger rather than smaller... I, I was secretly ecstatic to uh, discover that each of these historians shared an interest in how we see the world and its spaces in the past. 
whether in terms of its political, intellectual, social or cultural past. And I think we'll find out in understanding the significance of this vision for how we see ourselves today. So what we all share is an interest in global connections from the 16th to the 20th centuries, the histories of empires as well as nations, transnational and international experience and agency, relations between individuals and cultures, including individuals who belong to several cultures at the same time, or who move between different identities, languages, countries of residence and nationalities, their history of international institutions as well. So it's that history, I guess, that which brings me to boat people and to Joyce Chaplin. So let me go and sit next to her and I'll start asking her questions about people who circumnavigated the world. So I'll sit here in the middle. Okay, Joyce. So this is where you get interrogated about circumnavigation. So um, what, can you talk a bit about your project and what drew you to it and about the 16th century and what started you off? Um, I was drawn to it because it was a very literal way of looking at the globe and global history. Um, so instead of thinking of global and globalization as metaphorical or social connections uh, that uh, exist across parts of the planet, um, circumnavigation means going around a real physical body um, and uh, learning uh, more about that physical body in the process of having that experience. So I thought of it as a way of looking at the globe rather literally as this discrete physical object that people encounter. First in boats, as you said, um, going around uh, on the ocean. That's the original and some would still say the best way to go around the world. Um, I was also drawn to it because it took this very literal physical idea of the globe and put it well back in time. Um, I think that globalization is something that people associate with the modern era, um, with a, the world that we have now and the social connections assisted by technology uh, that we associate with a global world that we have now. But circumnavigation began sort of improbably early in the 16th century. Um, uh, Magellan sets out in 1519. So this is a history of almost 500 years at this point, half a millennium, uh, that people have been going around the world more or less. And I like that because I think that... Uh, Again, globalization is something that we think we have now, and we kind of deny to people in the past that they might have had glimmerings of the global society that we have now. They began things that we embellished and developed. Um, but this very literal way of encountering a big section of the planet um, was something that happened early on. Uh, and I'm very interested in the technology uh, that makes that possible and the history of that technology. Um, in the 16th century, sailing ships were just about adequate to take people around the world. They could just about do it so long as you were reconciled to losing over half your crew. That was a typically standard. Um, before the end of the 18th century, you lost most people. Um, so the ships could just about do it. Uh, the advantage, I guess, looking back on that is the ships could just about do it, and they didn't take that big a bite out of planetary resources. Now we go around the world, and it's very easy, if you could, by plane, um, go around the world uh, by cruise ship, uh, but the cost of the planet is much, much higher. So I'm interested in that history that, that we can trace, looking back 
at how planetary resources are used. Uh, and then to look at the, the realization that people themselves had as they went around the world uh, about the cost uh, in global terms, um, in, in terms of physical resources. Why do you think people set off to circumnavigate the world? What kind of reasons are they giving to themselves or justification? Greed, <laughs> mostly. Um, circumnavigations first were done by people who had no other option. They lacked an empire or a trading route uh, that was quite valuable, uh, and they had to kind of sneak up on something. Uh, Magellan was trying to sneak up on Portuguese uh, spice the Portuguese held Spice Islands, um, so he was heading through the back door, as it were, uh, to try to get there. And uh, it continues to be the kind of backward nations who have to resort to this kind of desperate stratagem that you go all the way around the world to get somewhere um, because it's not on the beaten track yeah, to do that. No one really wants to do it. So it's scrappy backward nations like first the Spanish, then the Dutch, then the English who resort to this. The Spanish end up not doing so much once they have their own empire. And it remains something that um, wannabe nations um, and wannabe people do. So uh, greed, uh, wanting to get to somewhere that would make your nation uh, more wealthy or make yourself more wealthy. A lot of pirates and buccaneers uh, go around the world. Drake goes around to loot uh, everything that he possibly can. So it's a very disreputable enterprise. Does that change? <laughs> um, it does change by the end of the 18th century. It becomes a more respectable thing. And indeed something that a lot of nations want to do to prove that they can. They have the navy. They have the men. And particularly once you don't lose at least half your crew, um, it looks like a better thing to do. By the end of the 18th century early 19th century when more people survive, um, it still is the sort of thing that aspirant nations do. So the United States mounts a circumnavigation very early in its history. Russia, after the Napoleonic Wars, makes a point of doing these around the world tours. Um, Japan, uh, under the Meiji Re Restoration, uh, mounts a circumnavigation or, or um, engages in one. And so it is something that you do to prove that you are a power in the world. Uh, when you haven't been. When do 16-year-old girls start doing it? <laughs> um, that's very recent, and we'll see if that lasts. Um, that's, um, I mean, there is somebody who goes around the world solo in the 1890s, an American, Joshua Slocum. But the person who really pioneers that um, self-agonizing, here I go, is, is Francis Chichester uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And I think that um, act on the part of an Englishman um, was nostalgic. Uh, the English knew at that point they were losing their empire. Um, this is a way of one person showing that they still had that maritime what's-it. Um, also, this is the era of the space race, um, which is the most recent version, orbital travel being the most recent uh, version of around-the-world travel. And I think it became very apparent uh, that very, very few people were going to be able to do that. Um, and that was a new age of imperial um, expansion uh, and uh, uh, investment on the part of imperial powers, the United States and the Soviet Union. And I think that a lot of people reacted to that um, by finding, again, a kind of nostalgic way um, of going around the world that didn't require you becoming an astronaut. Okay. 
So um, I'm going to move to David now and ask him a bit about his own history, which takes us in a different direction. Because in a way, so in a way, you're building on the interest in travel history and environmental history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in your work, particularly in the Declaration of Independence, the global history, in a, you were really trying to change the way in which people understood American history. Would that be... That's right. correct, yes. So yes. perhaps you could tell the audience a bit about the book. And... It may not surprise you from my accent to learn that I'm not American, but I teach mm-hmm. in America, and I think uh, anyone who comes from another country and teaches the history of that country necessarily sees it through different lenses. And I'd certainly felt for some time it was essential to, to coin a phrase, to globalize American history. Many American historians had been saying that people should do this, but not really doing it yet in the early to mid-90s. Um, And I thought, let's go for broke. Let's take the absolutely most American of all documents, the Declaration of Independence, the birth certificate of the United States, and if I could show that that was a genuinely, not just international, but in fact global document, then there was no reason why a global perspective could not be applied to the rest of American history. If you can start on July 4th, 1776, then it should be possible to globalize other aspects of American history as well. So was that a hard task, to show how global it was? As it turned out, it, uh, it was a long task, but a relatively easy one once one put that lens upon it. And it started in very basic things. For instance, the, uh, the text of the Declaration, the printed text of the Declaration, uh, printed on the fourth, night of the 4th of July, 1776, was, in a sense, at least an Atlantic document. It was printed, on, printed by a, uh, an Irishman, Uh, using a British printing press on paper which had come from Holland. The ideas that went into the document came variously from from England, from Scotland, and from Switzerland. Um, So this was a global document in and of itself. When the Declaration of Independence, the manuscript of it, was signed later in the summer of 1776, it was signed using an inkwell made of silver in Philadelphia, what is now Independence Hall. There were no silver mines in what became the United States. That silver came from Mexico or Peru. And again, the man who made the inkwell with which the declaration was signed was also an Irishman. So there were traces of these international connections, even in the physical form of the document. And then even reading the content of the document itself, the very first paragraph talks about one people joining the powers of the earth by separating off from another people. The document concludes with a list of the things that free and independent states may of right do. The Declaration of Independence was a declaration of interdependence with the other powers of the earth. Um, It was difficult to persuade Americans that this was the message and the form of the Declaration of Independence because they believe that the second paragraph of the Declaration, we hold these truths to be self-evident, is the heart, the meaning of the Declaration itself. Even Barack Obama, I think, in one of his speeches said he remembers his grandmother in Indonesia reading him the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence, and he went on, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And I read that speech and thought, that's not the American Declaration of Independence, that's the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence, which Ho Chi Minh began with exactly that line, we hold these truths to be self-evident in 1945. That was not the American Declaration, which began with very different words. So, so there's the, the history of the influence and the impact mm-hmm. of the, the, the language and the ideas behind the Declaration itself. But what about those ideas? Did they, mm. Were they American-grown? or No, they were uh, mostly derived from the work of a, a Swiss lawyer 
in the 1750s. Uh, we know that Benjamin Franklin had bought copies of a uh, very important uh, handbook of what we would now call international law in late 1775, sent it back to the Continental Congress. We know it was being used by them. What is the definition of a state according to that book? That they are free and independent. What's the definition, the description of a state in the Declaration of Independence? That it's free and independent, taken directly from that Swiss, very important Swiss work at the time. So what do you think were the most radical implications of the history you wrote? Mm. And did people get upset about it? To a certain extent, yes. Americans wow. are very attached to the second paragraph of the Declaration. My argument was the document was primarily about the rights of states, not about the rights of individuals, not about the self-evident truths, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and self-government, but really declaring the emergence into what we would now call international society, one people organized into 13 states, a hard statist view of what the Declaration declared, closer to, for instance, the Confederacy's view of the meaning of the Declaration of Independence from the 1860s. So that was quite controversial. I was accused, again, despite my accent, of being a neo-Confederate for taking this view of the Declaration of Independence. So can you imagine? So history is dangerous as well. Absolutely, yes, yes. I do remember reading the examples of attempts at succession mm. that the Declaration inspired. So mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. is it uh, Florida? Or which were the states that tried to... Succeed? Oh, there are many, many different examples. I mean, even take it in the present, I think something like 30 American states have secessionist movements to this, day. to this day, not supported by a great many people, but at least there's still that... But inspired that, by the language of the Declaration. Inspired by the language of the Declaration. There are at least 120 other declarations of independence produced since 1776, modeled directly or indirectly on, Throughout the world. on the American Declaration. Most crucially in this, you were asking about the direct relevance of our mm. studies of the past to the present. Most crucially, the latest example of a Declaration of Independence was Kosovo's in February 2008. Only on Friday, just this past Friday, the International Court of Justice ruled on the legality of that Declaration of Independence, ruled positively that it was in international law legal to declare independence. Um, that's the first legal ruling on the legitimacy, the legality, the licitness of declaring independence. And the very first Declaration of Independence was in 1776. The very latest was in 2008, ratified by international legal uh, uh, jurisprudence only four days ago. So it comes right up to the present, could not be closer to us. So an international court determining the global validity of... Who gets into the club yeah, of states and on what, what grounds? That's still a very important question for any secessionist movement. Uh, now the fear of uh, powers like China uh, or Russia, even of Spain, for instance, is that this will encourage further declarations of independence, further secessionist movements, further nationalist movements to break up the territories of states. Perhaps there will be another Western Australian secession movement, as there was in the 1920s. Who knows what will happen from this? So we'll come back in a year's time to see what the results of this might be. <laughs> Any West Australians in the audience? <laughs> So I'll just now I'll turn to Sunil now and talk about his own history, which is quite different. And in fact, it affects a number of national histories, doesn't it, really? If it, can you talk a bit about the work you're doing on diasporas and migration in the Southeast Asian region? Sure. Um, the focus of my work over the last few years has really been on that great period in the 19th century where literally tens of millions of Asians moved. They moved globally, they moved around the world, but primarily they moved elsewhere in Asia. And if we take Indian and Chinese emigration together, uh, something like 50 million people traveled overseas beyond uh, the boundaries of their 
countries or, or empires, as it were, to seek fortune or security or survival in other parts of the world. Most of them travel to the part of the world we now think of as Southeast Asia. And I think it's only very recently that historians have realized that that magnitude of migration within Asia was really on a par with the transatlantic migrations of the 19th century, which have received vastly more attention and which are much better known. And so my interest is really in that Asian history of migration, the implications that has for global history. Um, and it does affect a number of national histories um, because as soon as you're studying people who move, um, traditionally histories of immigration really either looked at it from the point of view of the uh, so-called sending country or the host country. But if we think in terms of diasporas, that is communities which in the process of migrating maintain connections with where they've come from, all kinds of connections, uh, familial, political, economic, then really these histories have to be more than national histories. They have to speak to many national histories. In the case of the work I'm doing, primarily I'm looking at how Indian history relates to the history of Malaysia in particular, Singapore in the present day, but also Burma, Indonesia, and other parts of the world that we think of as, as Southeast Asia. Is there a resistance to this kind of history, for example, in Singapore or Malaysia? I think there's a very strong resistance to this kind of history. And Partly that is because we must remember that most nations in Asia are very young nations, historically speaking. And there is still a very great attachment to the importance of state sovereignty, the importance of borders. Um, India and Pakistan have fought three wars since 1947 on, their, on what were essentially borders drawn by the British, departing British Empire. Um, national history means a lot to people in Southeast Asia today. And so I think there is resistance. Um, just a year ago, in 2009, a major Malaysian politician said of the Chinese in Malaysia that they are, quote, squatters and immigrants. Um, this language, and we're talking about people who've been in Malaysia for five, six, seven generations, if not much longer, this idea of there being indigenous people and migrant peoples, which is, of course, very important in Australian history, it's very important in many histories, takes on slightly different inflections in Southeast Asia. And I think that makes writing histories of migration um, politically difficult. Um, it's not to everybody's liking. But on the other hand, I think there are many people in Southeast Asia, many historians, but also others who, who want these stories to be told. And one way in which I think that's manifested itself is in the sheer amount of literary fiction that's come out over the last decade or more, which has tried to recover a, a more borderless history of Southeast Asia, which does take into account the vast diversity of peoples and movement that has shaped that part of the world, trying to move beyond the idea that um, the states that we live with today are somehow age-old, which they're certainly not in that part of the world. So how do you find your people? I mean, one of the I have talked to you about this before. Sewell works on what he calls the archive of mobility. You know, how do you, if you want to find out about the history of nations, it's, you know, often you, you, it's straightforward. You go to archives, national government archives, um, and often there are attempts to keep all sorts of um, you know, oral history archives. But what, what happens with the history of diasporas and mm. migration? How do you find your sources? This is, this is one of the, the most exciting things about working in this area, and I think also one of the most difficult. A lot of the people I'm interested in are not people who wrote diaries or left memoirs or, or wrote political tracts. Uh, they are people who 
in many ways left very little trace on, on the archive, at least very little written trace. And in some sense, the challenge that I face is no different to the challenge that social historians have faced for, for a very long time indeed, which is how do you write the history of non-elite groups, groups that are underrepresented in the written record. Um, it becomes perhaps com more complicated still by the fact that these materials, these little fragments that I have to use and that historians who do this kind of work have to use are scattered across uh, many different archives. So I do a lot of oral history. I interview um, people in that now in the 80s or 90s who themselves migrated from India to Malaysia in the 1920s and 30s, and they are there aren't many of them left. That's quite a, a, a challenge to locate living subjects. It's also sometimes a question of reading the, the Imperial Archive, the National Archive, for the traces that they do leave, often through legal records, um, through the records of the um, state immigration departments, which are very modern um, artifacts of the attempt by states to control the movement of these people. Um, also, the landscape. You can walk through any, his, any city in Southeast Asia, South Asia or East Asia, and really you are bound to stumble upon some physical trace of migration, whether it's a temple or a mosque that really speaks to distant places and, and the movement of particular forms of architecture and religious practice. Because that was going to be my next question. I mean, even if you can trace people, how do you find out what they thought? And what kind of questions do you ask about how they might have related to places? Is identity a question in what you do? To some extent, I think it's, it's very difficult to find out what people thought, except in those self-conscious documents that they have left us. Um, so, for example, I do look quite a lot at newspapers and political in the 1920s and 30s, the kinds of things that people were saying, and the increasingly self-conscious discussions that are being had in that period about what it means to live in diaspora or to live as a migrant. And these discussions are not representative. I wouldn't want to make a claim that they are. I think all one can do is really to sort of get at as many of these pronouncements of what people are thinking as, as one can. Okay, so so far we've had circumnavigation and exploration and we've got the inversion of the national history opening it out into its, or exposing its global context and contents and we've got migration and diaspora and then we get to errors and you're working increasingly in a realm that you think of as international society. So can I ask you a bit about that and maybe talk about the Wilsonian moment and how that brought you to this idea of international society? Yeah, well, I think one of the things um, that really interests me and that has come up already in this, in this discussion is um, the way in which states and nations and nation states get, get created historically. Um, we sometimes, we uh, professional historians, um, tend to think of history or have tended until recently to think of history as a characteristic of the nation, to work uh, in national categories. Um, and I think this movement uh, toward global history, uh, remapping the world, as you called it, um, really has a, a, at its core a desire to question this, uh, what some historians call methodological nationalism, you know, this assumption that history belongs to nations. Uh, and one of the ways to do that is to think about nations, in fact, are creatures of history, um, how they appear and sometimes disappear um, in history. So in the case of the Wilsonian moment, you know, everybody knows that 1919, the uh, immediate wake of World War I, the Paris Peace Conference, 
um, was uh, the birthing place and time of quite a few nations um, that are still around. Um, what interested me is uh, to look at those voices and those actors and those characters who were really absent uh, from previous, uh, previous histories of 1919. Um, and I did it uh, in a similar way, I think, to what um, David was discussing before. Rather than look at what uh, big characters that everyone is familiar with, uh, Wilson, uh, the American president, uh, the British premier, David Lloyd George, uh, the French premier, Georges Clemenceau, uh, were doing or thinking. Um, I looked at how others, primarily, as you said, in the colonial world, uh, were perceiving what was going on in Paris, uh, were perceiving the sorts of things that uh, these uh, big three, as they were called, were saying, and what it meant to them. So you know, 1919 is famous for Wilson supposedly having coined the, the term self-determination as a right of all peoples. Um, and I think in our memory, we tend to think of, of uh, 1919 and the American involvement of uh, Wilson's 14 points. I'm sure this is uh, familiar to most of you from high school history um, as uh, being defined by this call to self-determination. And what I realized when I started to look at the archives of the American delegation um, at the Paris Peace Conference is that they received literally thousands of petitions and telegrams and letters addressed to Wilson himself or the delegation or the Secretary of State or whoever dignitary that the authors could think that they need to address uh, the letter to, um, asking that self-determination be applied to Egyptians under British colonial rule, to Koreans under Japanese colonial rule, to Indians, again, under British colonial rule, uh, to Armenians uh, under the Turks, uh, to Catalans uh, in, in Spain, and so on and so forth, Irish um, petitions. And, and there were literally mountains of these petitions in the archives, um, which previous historians hadn't really looked at very much because they were ignored by the big three. The big three didn't, want, didn't particularly want to act on these petitions, um, but nevertheless, uh, uh, the people who wrote them thought that they were extremely important, and they built movements um, around the notion, movements in terms of mobilization, in terms of bringing people out into the street, in terms of thinking, you know, how do we, as David was saying before, how do we shape ourselves as a polity as a society, in a way that will legitimize us um, to the great powers, to others? How do we join this game, if you will, uh, that is international society? How do we, receive, do we receive recognition? How do we receive legitimacy? And the terms, um, the, the evolving terms under which all of this was happening uh, in 1919 and across the 20th century is something that's really fascinated me. I just find it so exciting because, I mean, as someone said it at the at the uh, postgraduate uh, conference that we held, you know, that it's once you stop looking through the prism of the nation, you you see all these things that were there, but nobody took any notice of, and it's very exciting in terms of the the well exciting and you know a, a slightly overwhelming. You see all these gaps in in what we know about the past, 
in, in terms of our own historiography, the, the kinds of textbooks that we, we're given when we go to school and ones we write even, yeah. you know, and how we wrote them. And you think, oh my God, why didn't I think of that before? Here's all these sources. I think it's true for a lot of the 20th century, let alone the earlier period, you know, that you can go back and examine something like the Declaration of Independence, which anybody you'd ask would say, that's an American document and it's about America. And suddenly you read David's book and my God, you know, it's about the world. And when you start asking those questions, then the importance of circumnavigation and this interest in the world and driven by greed, but also, and curiosity and all sorts of um, other imperatives, I guess. But can I just ask you then to think a bit about, you know, what, what you think is driving this historical interest in the global? Is it just the opportunity to do more research? Is it... <laughs> <laughs> hey, we've got more projects to for funding for. Yeah, travel, for travel, travel, for travel, travel, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. That's always important. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, I think what drives historians, um, like really everyone else who's interested in history, is trying to understand our present condition. And once we got in our heads that our present condition was globalization, uh, you really have to read that back into the past. You have to think about how this came about. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned you mentioned textbooks and, and the sort of uh, the, the gaps that we have in textbooks, um, because when I started uh, thinking about writing the history of global smallpox eradication, which um, occurred between the mid 1960s and late 1970s, one of the very first things I did was go to textbooks on 20th century history and 20th century world history, international history, so forth, and see how this story fit into the existing you know, stories that we tell uh, our, our children, in a sense, about what happened in the world in the last 100 years. And what I noticed is, you know, smallpox eradication is a pretty big deal. It's a first major, first and only major disease ever to be eradicated, killed hundreds of millions of people only in the 20th century alone and so on. Um, it, it's equivalent to, uh, in terms of its historical importance, to the eradication of, of, of HIV-AIDS, if that were ever to happen. Um, and nevertheless, it was missing from most textbooks on world history or international history of the 20th century. I did discover it in one textbook, and it was in a box uh, to the side of the text. You know how they have these did-you-know boxes. Interesting factoid. Um, and that, that struck me as fascinating because I read it as meaning that the authors of the textbook thought that this was important for students to know, but didn't know how to fit it into the main line of the story. It didn't fit into the other themes that they wanted to tell, that they needed to tell about the Cold War, about superpower conflict, about decolonization, and so on and so forth. So one of my missions with this project is to show myself and others uh, how, in fact, the story of smallpox eradication does fit and does illuminate in all sorts of different ways all these other things that we are already interested in, you know, the politics, the culture, the divide between north, the developed north and the developing south, all, this, all these major themes of 20th century history, um, uh, I think, are part of the story of smallpox eradication, as they are of, of many other stories about um, global challenges that are still just beginning to be told, the global environment, for mm. example. Yeah, that's definitely uh, one of those other things that goes into those shaded boxes um, about where did environmentalism come from and this concern for um, 
the human interaction with nature being trickier than we might have thought. And that's why I think that the early modern era, the 16th, 17th century, is so interesting because there was such a consciousness at that point that the planet could roll over and kill you. Um, <laughs> and in some sense, you know, I find that the 19th and 20th century history took nature out of the story. Um, and it's really important, I think, with environmental history to put it back in, not only to explain what we're up against now, perhaps, but to see how we got there um, and uh, putting nature back into the 19th and 20th century where it's been really excised um, as a central concern um, of, of that historiography, I think, is, is, is critical at this point. What about, and if I go to you, Sunil, I mean, your first book was on uh, health in an international mm. context. And, and in a way, health and environment are two of the key areas, two themes, I suppose, that are driving some of this interest in, in the global and that have either been put in boxes previously or ignored altogether. I mean, did you find that with your first book, that there was, what, well, what took, brought you to the subject of global health, if you like? Was it the global or the health bit? I think similarly to, to what Eris has said about the smallpox book that he's writing at the moment, I, I wanted to look at public health as a way of telling another kind of story about decolonization in my case. And um, that is actually where my interest began in these connections between India and Southeast Asia, because what I was interested in was the striking connections and similarities in the ways in which these very, very different states uh, communist and capitalist, democratic, socialist India and still colonial Malaya were actually approaching some of these problems of public health and social welfare in very similar ways. And so the question was really, what are the conduits of that exchange? Um, is it coming from these new international organizations that were established in the 1930s, 40s, or, or indeed earlier in the case of public health? Is it coming from newly independent Asian states trying to assert a sense of a claim to the global world of science and technology and um, development. And my interest in that whole field um, really came, I think, as, as Eris has already said, from a concern with the present conjuncture of, of development and development policy and why, you know, in the words of, of James Scott's famous book, so many schemes to improve the human condition have failed. Um, and the two things that I was really trying to bring together in that work were the what seemed to be tremendous success, I mean, if you look at malaria in the 1950s, they never eradicated malaria, unlike smallpox, but if you look at the declines in mortality and illness from malaria, they were absolutely astonishing. Yet, by the end of the 1950s, you have all kinds of anxiety about these projects running out of steam, about malaria resurgent, about environmental concerns to do with the whole assault on nature using insecticides in the 1950s, and debates about the the trade-off between, in this case, DDT and, and malaria. I'm going, to ask, I'm going to bring you back in the conversation in a minute in regard to empire, but given we're on the 1950s and 60s, if I turn to eras, the 1970s eras. Now, this is now being considered a key decade, and I'm thinking of not just environmentalism um, and perhaps an aspect of it, but you know, the climate change, the first kinds of theories of climate change are being put forward at the UN in the 1970s, right, and the measuring of it and discussions. But what about um, international society in the 1970s? Is there an interesting conjunction there? Well, um, some uh, colleagues of mine and, uh, and myself have just uh, published a book where we 
<laughs> conveniently, where, where we argued that uh, the 1970s is the sort of transformative moment that you suggest. Uh, the 1970s, we all know, is, is a decade of, of crisis. Is, you know, malaise is the term Jimmy Carter famously used or didn't use, but uh, that we attach to him uh, in, in the context of the 1970s. And the flip side of, of crises, the flip side of the falling apart of uh, many aspects of the order uh, that had been put uh, uh, in place after World War II, uh, political, financial, um, social and cultural in many ways. Um, the flip side of that is new things uh, coming to the fore. Uh, and so even in the most obvious and, and, and basic symbol of global environmentalism, Earth Day, uh, the, first, the first appearance that it makes is in 1970. Um, this, uh, this sort of consciousness, uh, you know, speaking of circumnavigation, I think the late 1960s is, uh, and Joyce will correct me if this is wrong, is, is the first time where you get a, a, uh, these, these images uh, from space of planet Earth as this uh, whole, complete, imaginable, or, or, or visualizable, right, uh, fragile thing that we need to protect. Now it's become an iconic uh, uh, image. Uh, planet Earth from space, but back then it was it was a fairly new and, and uh, shocking, I suppose, to Is that the what you the book shock of the global. Shock of the global, right? Exactly, in in, in the very literal literal sense. Um, so the 1970s uh, do form. You know, there's all sorts of other things. Uh, uh, the, the capital controls, the con controls of the international flows of capital that had been in place really uh, since the Great Recession, and in some in some cases since uh, since World War One. Um, uh, the Great the Great Depression. Did I say Great Recession? Um, the Great Depression, in some cases before uh, World War One, uh, fall apart in 1970. So you start so you start getting uh, the, the, these instantaneous flows of capital, uh, which really marked the 1980s, 1990s, up until two years ago, I suppose. Now we're, now we're entering into a new era. We'll see how that how that pans, pans out. Well, if we go back to, a little bit just to that question of um, how we got to this interest in the global. I mean, your earlier work, David, was on empire. The ideological origins of empire was, British empire was the first book. I mean, is, is that the same as the kind of history you're doing now, do you think? The, the history did, were you doing in relationship to empire now and the history you did before? Or, or has it changed the way in which we think about empire? To what extent is empire driving this interest in the global? Well, the I, I think just uh, in case of my own work, what the big problem I've been trying to work with consciously and earlier unconsciously, is the shift from a world of empires to a world of states. The, the 1970s are the crucial decade for the extinction of empires. 1975 is usually taken as a rough marker of the very uh, climax of decolonization with very few remaining overseas colonies that left, uh, at least left to decolonize Macau, Hong Kong, for instance, as the last untidy bits of empire. The last empire so-called was the Central African Empire of the Emperor Bokassa, uh, which is extinguished in 1979, the last state on earth to call itself an empire. So in the 1970s is the end of empire, perhaps even more symbolically and this is getting extremely personal now, uh, I was born on the day that Winston Churchill was buried, and that was a symbolic moment, the great lion, the titan of the British Empire going into the ground. I emerged on that same day as a, as a, as a, a, tr a truly, and a little of a spirit passed to me, uh, 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 a truly post-imperial post individual. I said, no, I, but I, I, I mean, more generally, I think it's not a coincidence that we are relatively young historians mm. here. Uh, we're historians who've grown up in a world without empires as being major political or economic units spanning the world. We've, we've lived in a, in a, in a mostly decolonized world. Uh, for us, empire is literally history. 
and we've wanted to historicize empires. And a lot of work that many of us have been doing uh, has been to argue that uh, until very recently, uh, the world was uh, mostly structured through empires, not through states. Indeed, part of the implicit argument of my book on the Declaration of Independence is that the globalization of statehood, of the form of the state to cover the whole of the Earth's surface, really begins in the late 18th century and then maybe reaches a climax by the 1970s, a two-century-long process, except for Guantanamo Bay and the penguins of Antarctica. There are no beings which are not living in or under a state. The state form has gone global. And when I thought about that, I thought that was in some ways a paradox. In the, at the height of globalization in the late 90s and early 2000s, the assumption was that globalization was going to sweep away the state, that it uh, broke down barriers, that flows of capital and migrants and ideas and pathogens even uh, were going to sweep away the idea of statehood as territorial and bounded. Whereas, in fact, part of my work has been to show that the state itself was one of the beneficiaries of globalization as it was spread throughout the world, usually in competition with empire and from the collapse of empire. So since 1815, 62% of the states that currently exist on the face of the earth were born from the collapse or the breakup of empires. Uh, my book on the Declaration was about that process of state making out of empire. My current work on civil war is about state breaking within empire and then the breakup of states into smaller states through the forces of nationalism and other uh, secessionist and disintegrative forces in, in, in the modern period as well. I think this is the great global history, which again, like, like the stories of circumnavigation or smallpox or Asian migration, hasn't been told, but they're so fundamental to the very matrix that we all inhabit in the world, that it's perpetually astonishing, I think, to all of us that these big subjects have escaped historical attention until very recently, but that's one of the reasons why it's so exhilarating to work on these big, sometimes very intractable projects. You have to travel widely, learn languages, think broadly mm -hmm. to conceptualize such projects, but this is where the real excitement is if we're going to understand the complexity of our contemporary world in its deep historical context. And it might explain some of the contradictions, you mm -hmm. know, why mm -hmm. in the middle of, you know, this sweep of historical interest in the global and global connections and experiences, in fact, you have across the globe political parties turning back to mm -hmm. narratives Absolutely. about border control and mm -hmm. immigration. Mm -hmm. Um, and no, both people that you know appear and disappear and reappear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was actually trying to remember. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think Julia Gillard's my age. I, I don't even know how old Tanny Abbott is. But so we would have been at university when this, when the whole kind of the phase of Australian history as migration history was at its peak in the 1980s, and uh, it's a history that we've forgotten. I don't know whether then it went into the high schools, and mm. I'm not sure where it is anymore. What happened to it? It's migrated somewhere. Um, <laughs> but perhaps. You know, there's a final question to errors or antecedents to anyone. So, what's so? Where does the history of international institutions fit into all this? Is there a, is there an interest, importance in resuscitating internationalisms of the past or international institutions? I think so. It, 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 it used to be said, and some still some said, still said in some quarters, um, that. The, the mere mention of the United Nations or any other international organization in your book title is the death knell. <laughs> Publishers never wanted to see um, anything like that, any of these acronyms mentioned in book titles, uh, because it was, they were considered just uninteresting. You know, they never did anything, supposedly, anything interesting or anything important. Uh, they were just talking shops. Um, they were irrelevant. 
And I think once you begin looking at, at these histories, and, and I'm, I'm not going to try to deny that there isn't an aspect of international organization or, or any organization or any political organization that is uh, talk and that is uh, inefficiency and that is all these things that they tend to be accused um, uh, with. But um, once you start looking at the impact of international organizations in, say, the last century, um, you see that it's, it's tremendous and it's, it stretches across uh, various different fields in, in disease, in, in refugee, in uh, you know, international organizations fed large parts of Europe um, after World War II. Um, so all of these things, I think, are quite crucial, and historians are just now beginning to discover sort of this, this gold mine, even at the very basic level of archival material, all of these archives, um, where uh, you, could, uh, you can go and look, and, and, um, and, and historians are beginning to, to do that. Uh, so I think I think it's um, I think it's the wave of the future. If if uh, if if you can phrase it that way, I think the the one thing that really becomes very clear as soon as you start thinking of, about history globally is the ephemeral nation, nature of the nation state. Um, it did not exist for most of human history, and even in the period that we do th- see it as existing, um, it had many competitors. It had many difficulties. And once you realize that, you, it's fairly easy to begin imagining a future um, where nation states sort of recede back into history. Now, I don't want to put a date on it. <laughs> that I've learned we should never do. Um, but, uh, but I think uh, it's, it's something we need to think about. Okay. All right, so maybe at that point, I'm sure you all have lots of questions. We've covered a lot of ground. And this is the time when we open the floor up. So if anybody would like to come down and ask a question at the microphone, just there. There's one there and one there. We'll see if anyone here can answer them. Have we got any takers? You do have to come down. It's a bit boring. There you go. And there's no money prize. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hi, um, this is a question for David. Um, with the division of so many nations, especially um, USSR, can you predict what the critical point will be at which you cannot divide anymore in a practical sense? I'm not sure it's possible, possible to predict. Uh, uh, we're all historians and we're invested in the various pasts that we deal with and therefore, as, as Eris pointed out, we're always very wary about pointing to the future. You can have a, a, a state as small as Andorra, for instance, uh, a pocket handkerchief state still existing uh, in, in Europe, uh, what the big, the big resistance is not size, though. It's the resistance of the, the, the previously existing state. In general, it's true that states tend to prevent any breakaway part of their territory or their people. States are very resilient creatures which fight hard against the bacillus of secessionism, uh, as we see again in the responses to the Kosovo Declaration, that uh, uh, although the European Union itself was formally against uh, was formally in favor of Kosovo's independence. Parts of the Union, like Spain, which feared breakaway of the Basque country or, the Cat- or Catalonia, uh, uh, were very strongly against it. But uh, a, a unit can be as small as the largest number of group, of group of people who call themselves a nation and wish to determine themselves through possessing their own institutions within their own territory. Whether it's economically viable might be a different matter, uh, but there tend to be other kinds of arrangements, for instance, as for Kosovo now, to bring them into international 
commercial organizations in such a way that they can be supported at least minimally economically. So there's, there's no uh, reducible size that we've seen yet for a state. We know the very big ones tend not to last, the uh, Soviet Union. I, I would be very worried if I were the Chinese Premier or President Obama for potential uh, breakup of those extremely unwieldy, fundamentally imperial side units. The USSR, the, the, the China and the USA are the two last great land empires of the 18th century, uh, 19th centuries, which still exist and last today. In a hundred, uh, I would make a prediction in 100 years they're not going to be the same shape and size that they are now. We'll come back in a century to see whether that turns out to be true. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, can I ask, if nation states are ephemeral, what will come next? Mm. And as a follow-up, what will follow capitalism? It's funny how historians are always ask about the future. <laughs> <laughs> come on, Eris. <laughs> well, talking about the future is much easier than talking about the past because... You can make it up, exactly. Um, I, what David was just talking about, Kosovo, I, th I, thought, I thought to myself that, yes, states are, are still breaking up, but in, in some sense, if you want to think of it as, as historical trends, um, I, 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 would, I would characterize that as the tail end of, of a past trend, um, which uh, would be uh, the following of, of the principle of national self-determination to its logical extreme. Um, I, if I had to guess, I think the wave of the future is not empires, but it's supranational institutions. And I think the, the European Union is actually the, the best actually existing example now uh, of what I suspect the future might hold. And the European Union has all sorts of problems, we know this now, um, but it's actually seems to be proving itself, and, and I, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say this, if it falls apart tomorrow, it'll be... You know, uh, too bad, uh, but, but seems to be actually quite resilient uh, despite uh, all of the difficulties that, it, that its unwieldy structure creates. Do you know what's interesting? Historians, of course, can go back and look at archives and find out when historians were asked in the past about what the future would be like. And if you look at the mid-20th century, at the end of the Second World War, many people, including historians, thought that the future was federation. And so the European Union is, was going to be one Federation, right. and most of the world would be divided up into them. So, you know, we all, Julia Gillard threw away Asia-Pacific, and everybody laughed when Kevin Rudd talked about that. But that was actually an older dream about the Pacific as one of those regions uh, from the, from the mid-20th century. So you'd have Africa, the Pacific, the Middle East. Uh, where's the United States? Is that in some kind of... I can't remember. NAFTA, the Americas, NAFTA. 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 Right, okay. So, but basically, that you would work toward, because the Enlightenment premise was that we were moving from smaller to ever larger communities, and f f federations, <coughs> regional federations, was the next stepping stone to something else. But then the other side, th there were other kinds of arguments that you might need to create a sense of international community and foster that first, and then you'd come to some other kinds of political forms, right? right. And the way in which... Nations often were political units first, and then you created a national identity for them. So those questions have been posed many times, and that's the other interesting historical point, I suppose. In the, in the region you study, what's the what you know? Have those questions been posed a lot? What are the kinds of answers that exist? There are two trends sort of pulling in opposite directions. On the one hand, I think Asian states, India and China in particular, are probably as wedded to state sovereignty as any states on Earth. 
um, they believe very, very firmly in the sanctity of the borders that they have. And as David said, secessionist movements are treated with particular um, severity, in, in not only in China, but in India too. And if you look at the biggest political crises in India at the moment, uh, some of them have to do with secessionist movements in the northeast, as well as the uh, Naxalite or Maoist rebellion that's um, quite active in, in large parts of India. On the other hand, there have been many moves towards a more regional set of political institutions. You only have to look at the um, ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is, um, it's not integrated in the way that the European Union is, but it does fulfill some of the same um, functions, and I think it is here to stay. It is a tendency which uh, most Asian states see as positive, a certain amount of regional cooperation, but this is regional cooperation which takes state sovereignty as red, probably much more so than the European Union does. So the fundamental principle of ASEAN is non-interference. There is no sense in which the ASEAN, in the way that the European Court of Human Rights, for example, can intervene in member states. In ASEAN, the very principle is that states are absolutely sovereign and they can do domestically as, as they please. And, and the kinds of pressure ASEAN states apply on each other tends to be much more in the f- realm of informal diplomacy, as you see with a number of Southeast Asian states and their approach to the Burmese regime at the moment. I think it's also worth considering how people imagine themselves um, to belong to a larger world, which may not always have something to do with a particular nation or international institution. Um, The thing is, I think that a lot of people, cosmopolitanism has a history, uh, and people have been imagining themselves as citizens of the world for a while. I think the present day, when people think about this, um, the citizen of the world is a kind of citizen consumer, uh, which makes it hard to figure out what could come after capitalism. I'd be stumped. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned the word imagination, because I was suddenly wondering whether what we do is meant to contribute to uh, other ways of imagining community, mm-hmm. so international imaginings or global imaginings. Mm-hmm. Would you, do you think that's what you do? Yes, because I do think that circumnavigators thought of themselves as a particular kind of community and intergenerationally, uh, that people who went around the world 19th, 20th century would keep harking back uh, to uh, whatever pioneers they thought that they were emulating, and they did think of it as a club, uh, both nationally and um, supranationally that they, that they joined. Uh, I mean, it becomes meaningless. I love how in the 20th century cruise, luxury cruise liners will have the Magellan suite, <laughs> which given how Magellan died miserably in the Philippines is sort of an odd <laughs> tradition to be commemorating. But yeah, uh, that's why I think that cosmopolitanism is worth looking at as something that is not specifically national or political. Um, it's, it's not really enmeshed in the kind of uh, traditions of creating an international society through state or non-state actors. Now, you, you know this as well as I do, Sunil, don't you, that in, when the UN experiment was started, and perhaps probably we could go back to the League too, that the idea that if you change the way you wrote history and the textbooks you wrote, and if you removed nationalisms from textbooks and you started writing world history that familiarised people with people, you know, for someone from the other side of the world and their languages and their cultures, that somehow you would create a more peaceful world, that you would change the world, the history could change the world in that way. I don't think that's, I mean, I, you know, I don't think that's what I think I'm doing, but do you think that, that you are changing, that changing the way in which one writes about history, the kinds of sources you find... The, the context in which you put things, the sorts of subjects of history you locate, 
Does it change things? Does it change anything? I think part of the obstacle, I think history can do all of those things at its best. And I think your mention of textbooks is very important because I think that one of the challenges is really to translate the kinds of research that professional historians have been doing, the kinds of discussions that we're having here, into the kind of history that's taught at schools. I think there are very few countries in the world where these wider perspectives on belonging, on community, on the past... um, necessarily make it very far into national uh, curriculums. And that's true even if we step back from a global perspective to a regional one. I think one of the saddest things is that mm, school students studying history in most Asian countries um, will not study the history of the country next door. They might study American history. They might study global history to some extent. They might study the history of wars and international relations, but a student studying history in Thailand is not going to learn anything about Malaysia. Mm. Uh, A student sitting in Malaysia is probably not going to learn anything about Indonesia, despite the very close cultural and political links between uh, those countries. And I think there is a real challenge here in somehow engaging with not just a wider non-academic public, which we try to do, I think, in various ways, but also with with education in schools, because I think that is something of a barrier. Um, States are very wedded to controlling school curricula, probably much more so than they are to um, various other kinds of public history. Okay, so we have someone at the mic. I was surprised to hear that empires were dead, uh, because we seem to see the rise of enormous empires in the multinational corporations, and particularly, uh, perhaps in healthcare, this is, uh, produces a certain tension with the international uh, organisations. I'd like to hear the panel's take on the globalisation of, of commerce as seen in the multinationals in the context of the changes you're talking about. Well, David said empires were dead, so... <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, as, as historians, among the most tiresome but most useful things that we can do is say we have to make distinctions and definitions to clarify what we're writing about. That if empire can mean anything which uh, we don't like, which is big and invasive, then it almost loses its meaning. By saying that empires were dead, I was saying at least in part that uh, the, the overseas empires, the structures of colonial domination and extraction by former states, you usually but not exclusively, obviously, European states dealing with the rest of the world, those are now gone as as formal organizations on the world stage. And no state, no organization in the world will call itself an empire. And empire is a dirty word now in our international political vocabulary. Of course, there's a great deal of discussion still going on in the U.S. about when the U.S. had become or was becoming an empire as a result of its overseas activities, its bases, its invasions, Uh, and so on. I was thinking more in political and economic terms, but others may want to talk to the utility of the metaphor of empire now being transformed from political entities into commercial or uh, capitalistic entities, for instance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think I I can sign off on on everything David said. To some extent, this is really a semantic question. What what do we call an empire and what do we call other things that, as, as you said, are are big and obnoxious. Um, <laughs> but maybe the point is that not everything global 
was good, right? Not really. Well, that's good. Yeah. Is that the point? Well, <laughs> also, I mean, I think part of the um, phenomenon that we're going around here is that globalization is really defined by economists. Um, right. And in some ways, historians are trying to look at um, and add dimensions to an idea of what kind of global history uh, we want to be writing, not only economic history, which is why I think we didn't talk uh, about economic history here. But certainly, uh, in looking at how we are global now, a capitalist economy is absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the center of it. So there, there are broadly, very broadly, two forms of global history. One is the, his, the, the prehistory of what we think of as globalization, which has a relatively narrow time horizon by those who did do it in that, that form. It might go back to the 1970s, and it does deal with international institutions, flows of capital, all those things that we uh, associate with globalization pre-2008. I think the world seems very different from that now. Other global historians... As, as I think many, most of us have been saying here, say we need to go back and look at the, the, the origins of those global processes in earlier periods, but also to assume that there isn't a, a teleology, uh, that globalization starts in 1415 or 1492 or 1776 or wherever it may be, and then continues relentlessly and implacably forward. One of the lessons of a deeper global history is that globalization often stops it often goes into reverse. It often faces the forces of fragmentation, of deglobalization, of localization as well. Until 2007, if you said that sort of thing at conferences, especially in economic historians around, people would back away from you as if you were a lunatic. Of course, globalization was going to sweep the earth for the, uh, the end of history. Remember the end of history thesis about this. Since 2008, it's been much easier to say globalization is reversible, it's punctuated, um, it, uh, can stop for, very, for long periods, it can go back into reverse, and it faces many forces of resistance against it. I think that's, uh, it was in fact, this is a secret we can let you all into, it was in fact historians who set up the global financial crisis just to get across <laughs> the point that globalization was not the relentless teleological future of humanity. Uh, in fact, history is much more contingent and unexpectable uh, than... Getting than, David uh, counselling for his neglect. <laughs> <laughs> Imperialism, I think it might be called. Eh? <laughs> Um, one more thing about the question of multinational corporations. I mean, they, they actually um, are, are one of the a type of actor that's quite difficult for, uh, for us historians of globalization, for international historians. Um, and whether we, we want to call them empires or not, they remain difficult. And, and the reason is that we know how to deal with states. We know how to deal with empires. We have methodologies. We know where the archives are. We know what the questions are. We know where to look. Um, with other kinds of actors, and that includes multinational co co uh, corporations, and that includes terrorist networks, and that includes uh, large religious organizations. The Cla Catholic Church is the, the classic example. Uh, we know they're important. We know they exercise a lot of power. We know they have a, a, a crucial history, but we, we, don't, we don't really have very clear methodologies of how to deal with them, how to integrate them into this, this story, how to take them outside the box, as it were, that I was describing before, and, and make, this, make this story make, make sense. But they're old. I mean, if you look mm. at... I mean, the, the Vatican has been <laughs> at this yeah, for a that's, while. Yeah, that's, that's exactly um, my point. They're, they're old. And, uh, and a lot of yeah. the Jesuits uh, were kind of international no, absolutely. order. They're, East yeah. India companies. Yeah, yeah. Um, so no, 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 they've been around for a very long time. But, in, but international historians, at least international historians of the 20th century, don't have much practice um, uh, uh, in dealing in with it. In seeing that past. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, 
but the, we have a great danger of being tremendously parochial, as one of, one of our colleagues in global history says. He feels very confined in only having one planet to work on. Uh, <laughs> this small globe is part, part of what's so fascinating about Joyce's work. Is she's going beyond the planet into space as well. I mean, this is real megalomania, going beyond our own, own world in global history. That I look at. Outside it as well. Yeah. Okay, you've been waiting. Uh, I saw myself addressing uh, the, the question of empire and um, the USA as, you know, the giant gorilla in the room that nobody's mentioned as an empire. But um, I'm just asking is globalization can it not be seen as, as sort of modern colonialism, imperialism of the US, you know, despite all the rhetoric, despite the de declaration of independence and Wilson, you know, with his rhetoric of self-determination, what about Haiti? So like, is, is globalization not re-colonialization in a form? When you say what about Haiti, you mean in, 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 the, in connection to Woodrow Wilson in particular or generally speaking? Just generally speaking in sort of the, um, the interests of the state versus the rhetoric. So, for instance, while the U.S. is preaching self-determination, it's intervening in Haiti. Yeah, yeah. So okay, that's, that that's... going forward in terms of globalization, is this not colonialism? Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's a complicated question. I mean, this, this notion that the United States uh, that, uh, is an empire um, has, has been used commonly by both, and recently, by both its detractors and its supporters. And we have among our colleagues uh, uh, historians of, of both types. So some say it's an empire and mean it as a critique. Some say it's an empire, it's an empire and, and mean it as a, as a sort of, you know, push for, toward action. You know, come on and be, be more of an empire. Be, be all you can be, right? Um, and, and, and again, the United States, there's, there's no doubt, has been in, in, certainly in the 20th century, perhaps going back even further, has been an extremely uh, powerful state, uh, has projected its power across the globe, right now has you know, a network of military bases that really spans the globe. And for me, it's less, it's less interesting to think about whether this is in fact an empire, whether it's not an empire, uh, but it is important to integrate this into the story of uh, globalization, the story of, of what... And I, don't, you know, I don't want to make it seem, at least from my perspective, that this talk about international society and globalization is meant to say you know, everything is good and everybody should be happy and, and all this is, is terrific stuff. I mean, all these things are complicated. All these things have bad and good aspects to them. I think, if you ask me personally, I think American power has had positive impacts around the world as well as negative. Uh, and that, to me, is a given. You know, no historical actor is all good or all bad. Um, once you want to, if you want to have those kinds of actors, you really have to, have to get into religion and sacred texts. Um, so, so you're right. It's a very complicated story. And, and you're right. Woodrow Wilson was talking about self-determination and at the same time invading Haiti and other countries. And had you asked him, he would have said, well, I'm invading them to help them get self-determination. Um, now, if you, if you want to buy it or not, that's a, that's a different question. But in his mind, it made perfect sense. So my job as a historian is to understand that. I mean, I think it's even more complicated. And Sunil, you might want to say something about this. But you know, lately the, there's a growing critique of um, the involvement of international institutions, humanitarian organisations, in the kinds of assistance that are being offered to Haiti and the, and the ways in which places like Haiti can only have roles as victims. And their whole history of their 
the contribution of that society to the formation of international institutions. I mean, Haiti at the end of the Second World War, Haitians were, you know, pushing the most radical interpretations of the Human Rights Declaration because they themselves were coming up with new, a new constitution back in Haiti post-colonialism. You know, so um, it, would you like to say something about that? Well, I think this whole history of international organisations has many lineages, and I think one of them is the history of humanitarianism, mm -hmm. which we can trace back... Uh, to religious charity, to the idea of identifying with the suffering of others. And I think, invariably, there is some extent to which that does cast its victims only as victims in a particular light. I think there's another lineage, which we've already talked about, which is international institutions coming out of a quest for self-determination, a quest for development. Right. Um, development has come in for a lot of critique over the last 20 years or so, partly because a lot of promises have proved illusory, partly because a lot of development projects have gone terribly wrong. But I think we must remember how sincerely very large numbers of people around the world believed in this idea of techno-scientific, state-led development in the 1940s, 50s, the genuine enthusiasm that there was for international organizations for these uh, sorts of promises that they made. And I think the charge that international institutions operate as neo-colonial or imperial institutions probably can be sustained in particular contexts. I think it depends a lot on uh, the motivations for their intervention, the relationships they have with uh, local states and local societies. I mean, I think one of the most striking, looking at it as a historian, one of the most striking instances to which the idea of colonization might well apply today is one we don't talk about very much, which is that huge tracts of Africa are being bought up by wealthy countries worried about the global food crisis in the Sudan, in various other parts of Africa, um, not in this case European, but Korean and Chinese and other often state-linked corporations are either leasing or buying vast tracts of land for their future food security. Um, there are many, many, many debates we can have about whether this is a form of colonization or not. Arguably it isn't. Arguably it's simply a transaction um, that they are purchasing large tracts of land. But nevertheless, some of these uh, motivations are familiar ones, and I think some of the politics of empire are still with us. Well, that's depressing. Okay. I'd like to extend one of the issues pointed out uh, with regards to the different curriculums of history existing across the globe. And actually, my question was prompted by one of the assumptions of the speakers that majority of the auditorium has learned uh, 14 points of Woodrow Wilson in high school. I think I've studied it in my undergraduate studies and only because of the focus of my degree in international relations. Uh, not, not referring to this particular document, but there are many facts that are taken for granted in one country and not familiar at all or even denied. Is it possible for the global society to have, well, one unique textbook on world history or we, 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 where we can put in boxes, as you have uh, suggested, not new ideas, but maybe... Uh, alternative approaches that exist in other countries on this particular issue, or will it be automatically blocked on national level as perceived uh, uh, ideologically harmful and provocative? Yeah, well, UNESCO tried to do that in the 1950s, and uh, history of humanity. And of course, in the context of the Cold War, what happened? How many volumes did it run into? 
And did it ever end? I can't remember. But what, they ended up having the footnotes took up more space because whenever somebody on the committee disagreed with a version of history, you know, the, the, the class-based version of history versus the capitalist-oriented version of history, then the, the objection was put in the footnotes. So the pages, like from, you know, the footnotes were like these notes of text. It was complicated. So um, hmm. do we want ask, one history? Can I ask where you got your high school education? In Kazakhstan, from Soviet Union. Well, I, I hope it's possible. I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, one book yeah. for everybody? One book for everybody? One you write? A lot, one of, I lot of footnotes? <laughs> a lot of, a lot of different boxes? <laughs> we, could, we could write that, sure. I mean, in, in the United States, they can, they can barely get two, two adjacent counties to agree on the, <laughs> on the same. I was going to say that even in science, um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, if yeah. you wanted to say, well, what is the history of the physical planet, there still would be disagreement about how to talk about that. I'm not being encouraging here. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I just like, throughout the discussion, I guess I've kind of mostly been struck by how, um, how pertinent the idea that it's only through looking back at these um, alternative ways of experiencing the world and organising the world that we can understand, however fleetingly, our own way of experiencing the world. So I'm kind of wondering, like, my, my favourite historian, or one of my favourite historians, would be Timothy Garton-Ash, and um, I love his ideas about like, collapsing the distinction between journalism and history, however controversial they may be, and um, how he argued that you know, writing a history of the present is you know, a, a valuable and a viable thing to do. And um, I'm kind of wondering if, like, as your, all your work, as, as it illustrates, I'm just wondering whether we can... Like, actually construct a contemporary history um, of the present from the vantage point of today if we only get fleeting glimpses through this backward exploration of what you're doing with circumnavigation with all of these different ways of the shock of the global, of looking at the world for the first time in a totally different lens, like of never, like of actually being struck by perhaps your way of, of experiencing the consciousness of the world is actually completely... Um, arbitrary, fleeting, ephemeral in all these ways and contours. Like, you can't, um, you can't see that until you look back. But I'm wondering whether this idea of writing from the present is actually viable in light of your work. I actually... I mean, I'm very aware of the problem of what is called chronocentricity, um, that we want it all to come down to the chronology that explains us. And I yeah. really... I think, I think it is important that some historians and some history does that, but I also believe that the past is just a different country, another country, um, and it is really valuable to see other human beings who are completely different. Um, yeah, and that may, that may in the end teach us something about ourselves, but there's also a way in which that's a cultural exercise in which you have respect for cultural difference um, by looking at people in the past as if they are from uh, a completely different culture. So I stick up for that, um, that there is value in historians just pointing out something about the past that may be completely alien to us. There's value in it, but is it actually possible? Like, I just wonder how... Well, that's an interesting question, if it is like, so different. Um, yeah. But, you know, anthropologists um, yeah. have a kind of protocol for doing this, and it's not um, unlike what I think historians can do for... I mean, it's an, it's an obvious exercise or a goal for the remote past, but it may be something that shows us something about the early 20th century that mm. may be remarkable um, to find out how very different a more recent uh, part of the past could actually be. And it's, it's one of the clichés of historical writing that 
all history is contemporary history, which I take to mean that all of, all of the questions that historians ask are prompted consciously or unconsciously by contemporary immediate problems, even if what we're trying to reconstruct in terms of the answers is something that's quite different. And it's that distance between the present and the past which is so important to us as historians, which might be different, for instance, from the way a journalist uh, would yeah. take the problem with a, uh, a smaller slice of time, yeah. maybe an equally wide slice of space. And my, my current project on civil war, I'm trying to do something which begins with ancient Rome and com comes all the way up to contemporary Iraq as, a, as at least an attempt to think about not a transnational history, which many of us are invested in now, a large part of the historical profession is invested in, but a transtemporal history. What happens if you take concepts and um, experiences and memories and traditions which have not uh, decades or even centuries but perhaps thousands of years behind them to look for their impact and shaping force on the present? That's going to be destabilizing. It's humbling to us in the present yeah. to put it into that kind of perspective, but we should have no illusions that we're pushed into asking those sorts of questions by the pressures of the present upon us as historians. And we have to be aware of that, I'm certain. Okay, so I think there's you know, a couple more questions. We'll just mm. take them together. Mm. And um, so you can ask yours first. Is there one over there as well? Is there a question there? Yeah, so yours and yours, and then we'll, have to, we'll finish up. Yeah. Um, basically, my question will be, um, because my dad is also a historian, and right before I come to Australia, he told me um, just two things that you can't drop is history and philosophy, even though I'm studying architecture. And <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, um, use history as a mirror. That's one of the old Chinese saying, use history as a mirror. You know life and death. So he always wanted me to never drop that. So I want to ask you is, uh, what's your experience and what's your um, process of learning history giving you the value and the purposes for learning history, even though for the people who's just studying other things. Hey, can I just say something? I like that metaphor before we hear the other. There's a wonderful African historian um, who uses a slightly different metaphor. Okay. He says, his writing history is like looking, driving a car. You keep your eye in the rearview mirror, but if yeah. you're only looking backwards, you get a crash, right? <laughs> okay. the, full, the, full metaphor, the full metaphor is if using um, using steel or water as a mirror, you can know how you look, but you use people as a mirror, you know what you gain and what you lose. Mm. Using history as a mirror, you, you know how you know life and death. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Uh, if I could ask the first two speakers to comment on a, a recent news item that seems to bring together the technology but also the uh, influence of Britain and indeed Europe on the Declaration of Independence, as I understand, if I got the story correct, uh, they found that Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote it, uh, he said, instead of saying citizen as it appeared in the final version, he'd written subject all the way through. And I don't know whether it was Peruvian or Mexican ink or, or what, but uh, I mean, that's a fairly dramatic change. Uh, I mean, uh, are there a lot of secrets like that that have yet to be revealed, do you think? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> because Joyce, we need jobs. <laughs> we need Stay tuned. And there was one more question. Do you want to ask yours? And then... Mine's just out of uh, curiosity for David. Uh, your book, or what you're working on now, is on civil war. Mm. I just wanted to know if your book is actually going to focus at all on the Rwandan uh, issue of 1994 with genocide. Um, I have a keen interest in that, and I was just wondering if, out of curiosity, mm. you would cover that. And if your book... 
as an overarching thing, is going to focus on the influence of the international community in civil wars, because that's my Do you want his notes? Interest. Is that what you want? You want his notes? <laughs> Basically, no, no, no. Writing an essay? I, no, I just wanted to know if your book will cover that, because it's a keen interest of mine. You going to cover that? Uh, not directly. What, what I'm trying to do with the book is to, is to look at the, the concepts of civil war, how they're used and in what context, which conflicts get called civil wars, what are the consequences of that in law and in history and in politics and in memory. Uh, Rwanda, I'll have to deal with that in terms of uh, only with the terminology of genocide versus civil war, for instance, who uses those terms as against one or the other. I'm not trying to write a comprehensive encyclopedic history of civil war. If I might take the Jefferson question yeah. as well before we go back to the, the really big one about matters we'll of life and death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think yeah, actually that Jefferson discovery, though, though it is very significant, that, that, that shift from, from subject to citizen, it's, it's a bit of a, uh, as you know, that, that discovery, alleged discovery was made uh, by use of radio spectroscopy on the ink uh, in Jefferson's draft of the Declaration of Independence. It has to be said, and this is a defense of traditional historical scholarship, that 50 years ago, uh, the greatest of Jefferson's editors uh, uh, in the first volume of the papers of Thomas Jefferson had already worked out that Jefferson wrote subjects first, then citizens. So I think of this as a bit of a storm in a spectroscope. In fact, that <laughs> traditional textual scholarship had derived exactly the same result 50 years ago, but had been forgotten, and then it becomes recovered, and then coincidentally on the 4th of July this turned into a big uh, item in the, in the American and indeed international press as well, but... Um, a little overblown, I must say. <laughs> so, so, like, global historians can also know lots about the detail of history. It's Absolutely. fantastic. Single words, even. Right. Yes. What about life and death? Anyone final <laughs> words on life and death? Two words. Right. Should you do architecture or history? Well, both, apparently. <laughs> history important? Does it matter? I'll leave you to answer that question. All right. History matters. History matters. I've enjoyed having the, um, these guests in my living room and all of you very much. I wish we could do this all the time. Thank it's much you, more Oprah. interesting. That's, oh, Glenda, that's right. Yes. Come and visit us again next year. Are we going to be here? We might be here. Do come along whenever we have one of these forums. I find them fascinating. It's, it's so interesting to listen to my colleagues. I don't get a chance otherwise. They're always too busy um, going off to conferences. And thank you all to those students who've come along tonight. We're part of the postgraduate intensive. It was wonderful getting to know you all. And thank you very much for coming. And they'll be around for a little while longer if you want to come up and ask them some questions. So thanks very much. <laughs>